how did you become a Baptist? You might not have realized this, but we, we are a Baptist church, right? Hopefully we pick that up through our membership weekend and different avenues, right? It's not in our name, but we are very convictionally Baptist, Baptistic, as we understand who the local church is. So how did you become a Baptist? There are lots of Christian denominations out there. Some, I would say, are more faithful to the scriptures than others. But, but here you are sitting this morning in a core seminar of a Baptist church, many of you members of a Baptist church. So as we think about the church, we have to always remind ourselves that the foundation of the church is the Word of God. The Bible is the authority for everything we do as a church. And local churches unite together around a shared confession of faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we talk all the time. We recite it every Sunday, portions of our confession of faith as Redemption Church because we understand that what brings us together is what we believe, right? What we believe God's word teaches about the gospel, about who the Lord is, uh, about the local church, right? We are, we are bound together, not by our skin color, not by our economic status, uh, not by anything else other than what we believe about the word of God and what the word of God teaches and so that confession of faith sums that up. But, you know, Christians sometimes disagree over matters of what the Bible teaches about things, which is why there are different denominational differences and distinctives that have emerged throughout Protestantism. Even though the scriptures are clear, we are hard of heart, we are sinners, sometimes we, we have a difficult time understanding what the Word of God says plainly, and so there are differences in doctrines between Baptists and Presbyterians and the Assemblies of God and the Anglican Church and on and on. And chances are most of us don't give any of those differences any amount of consideration uh, because we just haven't been taught about what's the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian or a Presbyterian and a Methodist. Most of us would be hard-pressed to, to really understand what are the, the doctrinal differences between those denominations. And I think because of that, because we tend to be a little denominationally agnostic nowadays, uh, I, I think it's created a problem where we really don't know what our denomination believes. We don't really know what it means to be a Presbyterian. We don't know what it means to be a Baptist. Nobody really knows. Even people within those churches would have a hard time telling you this is what it means to be a Baptist. So I ask you yet again, how did you become a Baptist? There tend to be three different ways I think people meander their way into Baptist life. First, some of you have been Baptist by conditioning. By conditioning, meaning you have always been a Baptist, right? It's all you have ever known. You're not sure why you're a Baptist. You just knew that you were born in a Baptist church. You were raised in a Baptist church. You've always been a member of a Baptist church. You've been conditioned to be Baptist by your upbringing, you never made this conscious internal choice of, you know what, I'm going to be a Baptist. No, it's just, it's just you've been Baptist by default, so to speak. So, but there's a second category of us that some of you are Baptist by convenience. Convenience, not conditioning, but convenience. Meaning that you just kind of sort of ended up here in a way. Perhaps you like the preaching, perhaps you like the music, perhaps you, you like some of the aspects of our church, maybe community groups. And so you're simply Baptist because you attend a Baptist church. You maybe could have been just as easily happy in another denomination, but you just happened to end up at Redemption Church, a Baptist 
church. That's being Baptist by convenience. But there's a third category, and this is the category I hope we all will, will arrive at as members of this church, is that we are Baptist by conviction, by conviction. Conditioning, convenience, conviction. Meaning that you're a Baptist because you have deep theological convictions that make you convictionally a Baptist. People who are convictionally Baptist can't, in good conscience, go join another denomination. They can't become Methodist. They can't become Anglican. They can't become Presbyterian. Because as they read the scriptures and as they understand the word of God, they are driven by their theological convictions, these Baptist convictions about the nature and purpose of the local church. So which one are you? Baptist by conditioning, Baptist by convenience, Baptist by conviction. I'll share my own story. I was born and raised a Southern Baptist. I was a Baptist by conditioning, if you will. My father used to to bring me to his seminary classes at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary when I was two or three, and I grew up as a preacher's kid. I grew up running down the aisle after church. I I always pigged out on the communion bread after it was done on Sunday mornings. I had all those privileges that preacher's kids have in in the local church. And so for me, I was conditioned to be a Baptist. But as I began to go to college and as I began to think about my faith much more deeply, I began to ask that question, what does it actually mean to be Baptistic? What does it mean to have a Baptist vision of the local church? What are the doctrinal differences and are they important? And and what does the Bible actually teach about these things? So as I searched for the scriptures, for me, my Baptist identity shift from merely being one of convenience, this is how I was born, being one of conviction. This is what I most deeply believe the Word of God teaches. So no matter how you ended up here this morning, as we begin to think through this office of deacon, it's driven by what we understand the church to be, the nature and purpose of the church. And I pray that you are here at Redemption Church, not merely by conditioning. After all, we've only been around three years, so you can't be born here too much, right? Not Baptist by conditioning or simply by convenience, But I want to convince you from God's word, always, Sunday by Sunday, as we look to the scriptures, to be Baptist by conviction. And one of the things that define Baptists is that we love the Bible, right? Baptists are people of the book. We love the scriptures. We believe in the authority of God's word, at least good Baptists do, right? And we teach it, and we preach it, and we expound upon it. And so as we begin to approach this idea of deacons, what does it mean to have deacons in the local church? It is connected to all of these issues of what does it mean for the church to be the church, and what does it mean for how the Bible says the church ought to be governed? What does church polity mean from the scriptures, and how does the office of deacon connected to this distinctly Baptistic vision of the church? So that's the question I really want to begin with today. We're going to spend the next several weeks diving into this office of deacon. What does it mean? What does the Bible say? And also we'll get into a little bit of vision casting of how we hope to implement the office of deacon here at Redemption Church. In fact, the the elders have a position statement that has been written well over a year ago now, uh, talking about how we envision the office of deacon to, to look and to practice and to operate in our church. This is a, an issue in our church's life where we hoped uh, to introduce back in 2020. 
And as you might imagine, 2020 and this pandemic greatly altered some of our plans that we were hoping to do. And so we were working towards establishing this office of deacon in our church uh, you know, last year, but due to the COVID and the pandemic, we felt it wise to hold. And again, this pandemic is still going on. We're still dealing with its effects, but we feel like now's the time to really start having this conversation in our church about the office of deacon. Right now, we don't have any deacons. Right now, all we have are elders, and we are grateful for those elders. But the time has now come to begin really thinking through what does the Bible have to say on this matter? Now, one of the really neat things about church planting is that we have no traditions, right? We're starting to. We're, we're three years old now, right? You do anything more than once, it starts to become a tradition in a church. But at the same time, we, we, as we come to this office of deacon, uh, we can really think through what does the Bible have to say about this office? And what does the Bible say about who's qualified to be a deacon? What does the Bible say about the sort of work that deacons ought to do? Where does the Bible give strict regulation? Where does the Bible give freedom in terms of the implementation of the deacon office? That's an exciting place to be, right? To, to really go to the Word of God and to look at it with fresh eyes and open hearts and open minds and see what the Bible has to say about this all-important office. So that's exactly what we're going to try to do these next few weeks. And so today I'm going to begin this conversation by thinking through what is this Baptist vision of church life, Baptist convictions that are so foundational, particularly if we want to really think through the office of deacon. So I want to think through the local church. Uh, so as we begin the local thinking through the local church, I want to remind you what our confession of faith says about the church. Here's what uh, the Confession of Faith of Redemption Church says. It says, we believe that Christians are to associate themselves into particular churches according to Christ's commandment that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers bound together by covenant and the faith and fellowship of the gospel and exercising the various gifts given them by the Holy Spirit for building up of the church that its primary duties are the reading and preaching of God's word, the right administration of Christ's ordinances, and the faithful exercise of discipline over its members, and that its only scriptural officers are elders or pastors and deacons, whose qualifications and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. What a great summary, right, of what this baptistic vision of the local church is. And again, one of the things we see highlighted there is there are two offices within the church, the office of elder or pastor, the words are interchangeable, and the office of deacon. But I want to begin by thinking through what is foundational to what it means to be Baptist and what does it mean to understand about the convictional identity of, of being Baptist here at Redemption Church. And this is the all-important idea of regenerate church membership. This is really where we have to start, and this is where we have to begin when we approach matters of polity. Now, what do we mean by regenerate church membership? If you've been through our membership weekend, which if you're a member, you should have been, right? And this is, this is what we, we teach and what we demonstrate from God's word is that the church is made up of believers, right? To belong to the church, the way you come into life in the local church is through the Lord Jesus Christ meaning that only those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ are welcomed into the membership of 
the church. Of course, anyone is welcome to come. Believer, non-believer, unbelieving children, right? We, we encourage everyone to come and sit under the means of grace to hear the preaching of the word. But those who belong to the body are only those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is foundational for how we understand not only who the local church is, it's not a mixed body of believers and unbelievers, but, but it's not only foundational for who the church is, but it's also foundational for how the church ought to rightly be governed. Right? These two things go hand in hand together. Uh, let, me, let me take your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. I want to I show you at the start of 1 Corinthians this sort of vision for local church life that Paul outlines in his introduction. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is Paul writing. He introduces himself, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a couple really important observations here about the way Paul introduces his letter to the Corinthians. First, he assumes that the, the church of God has a local geography to it, right? This is the church of God that is in Corinth, right? Paul will talk about, of course, that there are believers who call upon the name of the Lord uh, all over the place, in every place. But Paul writes specifically to a group of believers, an assembly of believers that meet in Corinth. So as we think about the church, remember the church has a universal dimension to it, right? The, the church is made up of all believers from all time and all places, but yet the local church is a manifestation of that universal church in a particular geographical location, bound together in Christ Jesus. Paul seems to assume local churches, local churches, the church that is in Corinth. The other thing that he assumes here, right? This is worth pointing out, this is the church of God that is in Corinth that is mixed with wheat and tares. Now, that's not what Paul says. Look at what he says. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. All right, Paul is writing to people who are sanctified, who are saints together with the rest of the church. So the assumption that Paul makes here is that those that are in Corinth are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Here we see a glimpse of the assumption of the New Testament that if you are a part, if you are a member, if you belong to a local church, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is foundational for how we as Baptists understand what the New Testament teaches the church to be. And because the New Testament church is made up of God's people, we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved and redeemed by his blood. Therefore, when the church assembles together, when they gather, they wield and exercise the authority of Jesus Christ. Let me take you to another important passage to kind of lay this foundation for us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20. This is, of course, a passage you might automatically begin thinking, all right, this is the church discipline passage. And indeed it is, where Jesus lays out the, the pathway for how do we discipline members in the church, right? What does it mean to, to confront a brother in sin and how is that process ought to work? And of course, you might remember Jesus lays out a, a three-step process of how to do that. But fascinatingly enough, something I think we overlook about this passage is the authority that the local assembly of God's people wield. 
And this is important as we begin to think through the governance of the local church in terms of who has authority in the local church. Let's read this passage together. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, right? The assembly of God's people, right? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and tax collector. Okay, that's that three-stage process of church discipline, but we tend to stop reading. Keep reading, right? This is fascinating. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Fascinating, right? Because what Jesus is is teaching here is that whenever his people are assembled together and whenever God's people make a decision, there is Jesus among them. It's fascinating. We tend to go to that last verse, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We tend to use that to talk about worship, right? That when God's people are together and you know, Jesus is in there, his presence is, is there, he's, he's with us as we worship. Of course, it's very much true. That's actually not Jesus's point here. His point here is that as the church binds and loose by its authority, by its decision together jointly, that the exercise, they are exercising the authority of Christ. To go back to Matthew 16, which is a few chapters earlier, here we see the church utilizing the keys of the kingdom, right? And, and this authority to bind and to loose. And so when the church does such activity, when it makes such decisions, there is Christ among them, right? Giving approval to the decisions of binding and loosing that the church makes. Now, one of the things I want to highlight here about this particular text as we think about polity and church government is that it is the assembly of the church that makes these decisions, right? It's the assembly of the people in that local church that have the authority to bind or to loose. This is what it means to be Baptist, right? That the the church is made up of believers and that the believers have the authority given to them by Christ to govern themselves, right? To exercise discipline over their members. Of course, pastors are involved in the church discipline process, right? As, as they should be. But notice that the final, where, where the buck stops, so to speak, is with the assembly of the church. It doesn't say it goes to the Pope or it goes to the bishop or even it goes to the elders. Who does it go to? It goes to the assembly, the local church and whatever decision they make. There is Christ Jesus among them. This is all tied together for us as Baptists. This is part of what it means to be convictionally Baptist, that the Baptist is made up of, Baptist church is made up of believers, and those believers wield and exercise the authority of Christ together by the Holy Spirit. So this is connected to this idea of regenerate church membership. Here's a quote that we do share at our membership weekend uh, about church membership. And it's a a quote from Benjamin Merkel, which I think just accurately sums up what we mean when we talk about church membership. He says, simply stated, church membership is a formal commitment to a local church. In other words, it is a covenant between an individual and the local church. This covenant should affirm that the new member has made a credible profession of faith, that the church is committed to shepherd the new member, and that the new member is committed to meet regularly with the church and obey its leadership. So 
being a member of a local church means that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons why for Baptist, regenerate church membership is so important, so significant, the reason it must be protected so is because the church is governed by its members. I think we've all heard a lot of horror stories of Baptist life. If you've been conditionally Baptist, you know what I mean, right? If you grew up in the Baptist church, you know that what, what tends to happen when we lose regenerate church membership, church polity gets chaotic and carnal and often quite nasty, right? And why is that? Well, it's because if we're not protecting who the church is, you're going to have goats among the flock, right? And those goats will wreak havoc in the life of that local church. Baptist polity, the, the, the biblical vision that we believe the scripture teaches about the local church is dependent on preserving the purity of church as much as possible this side of heaven. Now, of course, we won't always be perfect as we try to bind and loose according to Christ's commands. But when there's a, a church membership where there are wheat and tares and they're all making decisions together, uh, that is a recipe for disaster. There can be no unity in Christ if half the church isn't in Christ right? It's not going to happen, which is why these issues of membership are so significant. That's one of the reasons why at Redemption Church, we take church membership so seriously and indeed so slowly, because we want to make sure that not only do incoming members know what we believe as a church, but we want to make sure that they can give a profession of their faith, a testimony to what the Lord has done in their life, because we don't want to unnecessarily welcome those into the church who don't know the Lord. Instead, we want to stop them where they are first share the gospel with them, call them to repentance and faith, and then welcome them into the church, right? Because we know that, that if we allow those who don't know the Lord into the membership of the church, it will create countless problems and disruption and disunity in the life of the church. So membership and the governments of the church are connected, as we see in the scriptures. This is, again, part of our Baptist identity. This is what we mean by congregationalism. Right? That's a, a big fancy word, right? But what does it mean? It means that the congregation governs itself. This is what's distinctly unique about Baptist life. So if you've been in some other denominations before, you know that other denominations tend to have a much more hierarchical view of church government and authority. Right? There are often bodies that exist outside of those local churches that can then enforce their authority upon those local churches. So think about the hierarchy of uh, not just Catholicism, but even Anglicanism, Methodism in a way, right? There are bishops and those outside of that local church that wield authority and determining who your pastor is and who we're sending your way and what you're required to teach, right? All of that is enforced by outside parties, right? Baptist churches say, no, there's no authority outside of individual local churches, including Presbyterian government, right? Presbyterian government, there's a lot we would have in common with Presbyterian churches, but Presbyterian churches operate by a presbytery, meaning that there are elders that exist outside of that individual church, a group of elders gathering together that have authority to make decisions for local churches, right? As Baptists, we say that's, that's a bad idea. One, we don't see that in the Bible, and two, God has given authority to individual local churches. That's, the, that's where the authority and the decision-making ought to be. And so as Baptists, we are committed to this idea that each local church is autonomous and self-governing, as we see taught in the Scriptures. So what sort of things does the church body have authority to decide? 
Well, the most important thing, as we've already talked about in Matthew 18, is this authority of binding and loosing, receiving members and removing members. That is a decision that must be made by the church body. Indeed, it's the most important thing the church does when it assembles together and makes decisions upon things because we are binding and loosing. We often tell you when we have a members meeting and we're welcoming in new members into the life of our church, it's such a joyous occasion. It's a celebratory one in so many ways, but it is so such a vital part of our life together. There the church in that moment is exercising the keys of the kingdom, bringing into membership one of God's people and committing ourselves to them. It's a sweet and wonderful time and significant. So there's the accepting and removing of members. The other thing we see in the scriptures is the selecting and removing of its leaders as well. That's another part of being congregational, being baptistic, is that the local body of believers has the authority to determine who their leaders are and has the authority to remove those leaders. So if you've been at our membership weekend, I know some of this is a bit of review, but again, I think these are such important things that we have to come back to them over and over again because we forget. But one of the things we talk about at Redemption Church is we say that we practice a model of church polity called elder-led congregationalism. All right, that's a fancy string of words. What do we mean by that? Well, one, we mean that ultimately the authority of Redemption Church relies in the congregation of the church, the covenant members of the church. That's where the, the ultimate authority lies. Of course, it's Christ Jesus, but, but Christ Jesus' authority manifested in the congregation of the church. So that we're congregational, we're baptistic in a sense, right? But we also say that we are elder-led, meaning that we believe that the congregation stewards its authority, indeed delegates its authority, to men trusted to teach and preach and shepherd the church uh, in obedience to Christ and his commands. And so there are a lot of decisions, right, that the church gives its authority to and entrusts to men who are qualified and examined and determined by the church to serve in such leadership roles. This is important as we begin to touch on the issue of deacons, as we think about what are deacons doing uh, and what are deacons about. Well, as we've already talked about, there are two offices in the local church, two offices in the local church. So the congregation has authority. This is what it means to be self-autonomous and self-governing. But the Bible also gives us two clear biblical offices, the office of elder and the office of deacon. Now, you might remember, as we've talked about elders in the past, uh, el- the, the word elder is, is, is used, there's three different New Testament words that kind of all are used synonymously in the scriptures to describe it, elder, pastor, overseer, right? Those, those words are interchangeable for the single office of elder, And simply, we use the vernacular pastor, but these are pastors, right? These are people responsible for shepherd and teaching and doing all the things elders are responsible to do. Now, this isn't a course seminar on elders, but it's important to understand who the elders are. And and as we think through how does the office of deacon fit in with this elder-led congregationalism that we're convinced the scripture teaches. So elders wield that authority to shepherd, to teach. So what do deacons do? Well, deacons are the servant leaders of the church who come underneath the authority of the elders to assist the elders in the practical aspects of ministry in the local church. This is really important to think about. I think uh, Baptists have sadly gotten really confused about all these matters because around the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 
Baptists started borrowing a lot from corporate business practices, right, rather than from the Bible, and created some models of church government that actually aren't reflective of what the Bible says about the office of elder or deacon. Uh, if you've been in condition in Baptist life, if you grew up Southern Baptist like me, uh, the model you've typically seen is there's a single elder, right? Also not what the scripture teaches. Elders is always used in the plural in the New Testament. There's often a single elder, and then there's the, the deacons who are sort of like the board of directors, if you will, or the accountability board of, of the pastor. And, uh, and they're the ones that, uh, of course, keep the pastor in check, if you will. Uh, that's, that's not the biblical vision for either the pastoral ministry or, or the office of deacon at all. Uh, that's an anomaly. That's, that's extra biblical. That's something that needs to be corrected with what the scripture actually says. Elders and deacons are not like two branches of Congress, right, that, that keep each other in check. It's not like one's the Senate and one's the House of Representatives. That's not, it's not the way it works. The, the, the elders have the congregationally given and God-given authority to lead and shepherd the church. And the deacons then come alongside to assist the work of the elders. This is so important as we begin to flesh this out more, and we're going to go into more, more detail in the coming weeks of what that actually means. But it's important to keep that in mind. We're not talking about creating a, a rival board of the elders. Rather, we're talking about finding folks within the church who love the Lord, who understand what it means to be Baptist, who uh, honor and are willing to submit to the elders' leadership, but at the same time, take initiative and leadership in serving in very practical and hands-on ways. Uh, one of the passages that we'll look at in the coming weeks, we won't go to it today because I don't want to spoil it and I'm already running close to time, uh, but is Acts chapter 6. And Acts chapter 6 is where we get the first inclination of the need for something like deacons. There's some debate about whether that is actually where the office of deacon originates or not. But nevertheless, we see that there's this conflict within the local church. The, the Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And it's a management crisis, so to speak, an administrative crisis. And the apostles are hesitant to take it on themselves because they know that our, their primary work is to teach and to pray. Ministry of the word, ministry of prayer. And so the Jerusalem church selects from among them different men who will assist in the daily distribution of the bread. And so we see that this sort of dynamic seems to be pointing to what, what the deacons actually do. They assist in the practical hands-on ministry as spiritual leaders caring for the practical needs of the flock. Something that, again, we'll continue to flesh out is a helpful way to think about the, the office of elder and deacon is the office of elder cares for the, the spiritual oversight of the church, the leadership of the church as a whole, primarily the ministry of the word, as we'll go to as we look at the qualifications of both offices in the coming weeks. Um, but then the deacons come alongside and help with the, the practical aspects of ministry, the nitty gritty, get your hands dirty, making things sort of happen and serving the practical cares and needs of the congregation. Let me share with you a quote um, from Matt Smuthurst, from this book right here, right? This is his thesis of the book, and again, I think it's uh, something we hope to convince you of as we continue this study together. Uh, this comes uh, on page 21. He says, the basic thesis of this book is that deacons, rightly understood and deployed, are an irreplaceable gift to Christ's church. They are model servants who excel in being attentive and responsive to tangible needs in the life of the church. And what ways do they serve? By assisting the elders, guarding the ministry of the word, organizing service, caring for the needy, preserving unity, mobilizing ministry, and more. 
They're, they're, they're the on-the-ground servants in the local church. This is just so vital as we begin to think through what does the Bible teach about deacons and how are we going to implement it at Redemption Church. Uh, we don't ever envision the deacons being a board, right? Deacon and board are two things that will never go together. In fact, we never envision the deacons actually all meeting together. It's unnecessary in a way, right? The deacons will have specific responsibilities uh, to care and to, to facilitate the practical ministry of life in the church, largely to free up such leadership demands from the plate of the elders so that the elders can be more free to focus their attention on the ministry of the word, the ministry of prayer, the shepherding of God's, folk, uh, of God's people. This is, this is what the elders need to be focusing their attention on. Uh, and a, a church can make it without deacons for a season, right? Often churches like ours, when we're first getting started, we go through a season without the office of deacon. But the office of deacon is such a gift. It's needed. And it's such a, a beneficial and spiritual office for the church body that will cause the church to be healthy and strong. So I'm just teasing you a little bit about what is to come in these coming weeks as we begin to talk through specifically what is this going to look at like at Redemption Church. But next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look more carefully uh, at the office of elder and deacon. We're going to go through what are the scriptural responsibilities for those offices, uh, what are the, the general responsibilities of those, of those offices, and then as we continue, we're going to talk about the qualifications of deacon, and then we're going to get into uh, specifically what will that look like at Redemption Church. So that's all coming, uh, but we want to try to lay a good biblical foundation for you as we set that up. And today, the big thing I want you to take away is, one, the office of deacon is important, but two, it needs to be understood within this framework of Baptist polity and conviction about what the local church is. And so we are an elder-led congregational church, right, a Baptist church, and the office of deacon will play a pivotal role uh, in assisting the elders in their work of leadership in the local church. So I'm sure you'll have questions. We'll have time for questions as this course seminar goes on. Um, but may you be praying, may you be thinking through these issues together. And I look forward to having you back next week as we continue to think through this office of deacon together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll prepare for worship in just a few minutes. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word. We're grateful, Lord, that as we think about life in the local church, we don't have to invent a wheel. <laughs> Lord, you have given us your word that guides us and lead us in all faith and practice. Father, we pray that as Redemption Church that you would help us to think through how the office of deacon functions within a baptistic framework and understanding of the church. Lord, we, we believe that your word teaches that local churches assemble together, that the members of that church are regenerate, they are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, and that those believers wield the authority of Christ, the keys of the kingdom as they bind and loose uh, according to Jesus' commands. So, Father, as we think about the, the gift of the local church, the authority entrusted to the members of each local church, Father, we pray that you would help us to think wisely as we think of not only implementing the office of elder, but, Lord, now as we consider implementing this office of deacon. Lord, we know that deacons are a gift to the church. And, Lord, I am eager and longing to have uh, such uh, serve in that office that will be faithful and fruitful and assisting us as elders, and Lord, causing the church to spiritually flourish. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the wisdom, Lord, of your word. We thank you for how practical and helpful it is in thinking through these questions. And Father, we look forward to continuing to have this conversation together as we think through the office of deacon at Redemption Church. 
Lord, as we prepare our hearts for worship in just a few moments, as your church will assemble together to the praise of Jesus Christ, we pray that you might meet here among us, Father. We pray that your son would be exalted and cherished and magnified in our praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.